0: I'm going to be talking to Gael Maruga, PhD candidate at ETH Zurich, about flow batteries in this interview. So welcome to the interview, Gael.
1: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Now, I'm really interested in
0: flow batteries because the uh, issue of uh, utility scale storage is becoming more and more critical as uh, utilities modernize their grids, as they increase their amount of the amount of uh, intermittent renewables that they're integrating into their grids. And the question always comes up, what will we do for storage? So maybe let's start this interview with just an overview of what a
1: flow battery is, please. Sure. Um, so flow batteries, as you may be aware of, were invented by NASA in the 1970s. And so at the time they were building up on the work conducting during the Apollo project and they were researching long duration storage. So I think the idea at the time was to have moon bases, uh, which you know didn't really turn out to become reality. But then with the oil crisis in 1973, um, we realized you know, with the oil prices coming up uh, that maybe storing at a large scale, storing energy at a large scale would be a good idea. And that's when NASA really got more funding to research the idea further. And so at the time they developed the iron-chromium system Uh, And then in the 1980s in Australia, uh, the old Vanadium system was invented at UNSW. And so this is where things really started um, coming up for flow batteries, because the system really exhibited good performance. And so this is in the 1990s, we really saw scaling up of these systems, uh, mostly in Australia, in China, also a bit in the US. And so, yeah, the main idea behind flow batteries is to store energy at the grid scale. Right, so what are the general working principles of flow batteries? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. So for example, in this phone here, I have, which should be a lithium ion battery. And in this lithium ion battery, you have a kind of layered electrodes, right? In which we try to insert as many lithium ion as possible. So in a flow battery, uh, the general idea is that we're going to dissolve the ion, so lithium, for example, uh, in a liquid phase. And we're going to use not a layered electrode, but really just a porous material. So imagine a kind of a carbon sponge. And the idea is to pump the electrolyte with the active molecules around the sponge. And so the liquid will react with the sponge and will give us some some electrons, which then we can use. Um, So there are a few consequences about this. So the main one, the main problem is that the energy density is very low. Uh, Because our ions are dissolved in a liquid phase, right? So the the energy density of the battery will be much, much lower uh, than a lithium ion battery. Now, the main advantage is that the whole electrochemical principle uh, reaction is much more reversible. So in theory, you have a battery, so the electrolyte can last for 25 years. Um, But then also, we need to pump. Uh, so the efficiency of the battery goes down a little bit. So lithium ion is typically going to be in the 90% range, 95%. Uh, flow batteries will be in the 75, 80% range uh, due to the pumping. And so they're really more suited for grid scale storage than uh, portable applications.
0: Right, so if I understand this correctly, cause I, I've seen photos of flow batteries and they basically look like big C containers uh, big box metal boxes. And so inside you've got the, you've got the electrolyte, the liquid electrolyte, and this sponge that you're talking about. So you are circulating the electrolyte around the sponge. Whereas in a typical lithium ion battery, you've got an anode and a cathode and you've got your electrolyte and some separators and it works. So it's a very different kind of construction and mm-hmm. a much, a much you have to have a lot more battery of a bigger size to to do the work that, you know, to uh, provide the kind of storage that you,
1: that is required. Have mm-hmm. I got
0: that more or less correct?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I think you really painted a good picture of the system. Um, but one of the, the consequences about this is that, so these, you know, tanks of electrolyte that you mentioned, that's our energy component. And then this porous electrode that's in the middle, that's our power component. And so the main consequence is that power and energy are scalable independently. So let's say you want to add two hours of storage to your system. Well, you can add a tank, uh, which is something that you cannot do with a lithium ion battery.
0: Now, what kind of chemistries are the most most commonly used these days? So
1: vanadium is by far uh, the most common and the most performant to date. So the biggest projects are, you know, in the megawatt hour scale uh, in, in China, in Australia. Um, But I think on the old continent and also in the US, there are some new technologies emerging. Um, The one I'm working on is aqueous organic. So the idea here is not to use any metal in the active material. So to use kind of, you know, um, polymer molecules dissolved in in water. That's the main idea there. And that could solve, you know, some supply chain issues with respect to uh, metal supply.
0: Okay, so uh, aqueous, uh, so we're talking about water and polymers, Are we like a
1: type of plastic? Uh, we're talking really more like a salt, an organic salt. So yeah, imagine kind of a material that's made of carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, kind of a big molecule, which is dissolved in water. And where
0: would that molecule come from? How would you create that molecule?
1: yeah that's a good question and actually one of the molecules uh, we're using was designed in the 1970s as a herbicide Um, so there's a whole synthesis uh, process behind it and what you end up with is kind of this um, blue blue liquid which has been used a lot in southeast asia as a herbicide Um, and yeah i think it's it's pretty cool in a way to use a herbicide in a battery well, we'll we'll get to uh, a little
0: more detail on your research in, in just a moment. Uh, let's talk about flow batteries in the context of grid scale storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do flow batteries tick some of the boxes that lithium-ion does not?
1: So, as I mentioned previously, I, I think there's this, this um, the duration of storage. So, with a flow battery, you can design a system that will store eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours um, of of peak power. Uh, With uh, lithium ion, typically you're you're limited to four hours of storage. And so in markets where you you want to be doing intraday trading, maybe peak shaving uh, on the electric grid, um, I think then flow batteries become interesting.
0: Now I interviewed uh, a company a couple of months ago that has an iron flow battery. And mm-hmm. they, they claim that that battery uh, can do 12 hours duration now uh, with some tweaks over the next few years. They'll get up to 16 hours. And they say that that's about all that's required. Now, basically, you know, if you're doing, uh, let's say your, uh, your uh, power is generated by solar, then if you have 16 hours of uh, sunlight and you're generating s- solar power, then you charge up the battery and you only need it for, you know, X number of hours while the the sun isn't shining. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that kind of where we're at? I mean, it sounds to it sounded to me like uh, these were in ex- relatively inexpensive. They provided enough storage uh, for the the grid. Uh, and it really then was a question of scaling up the the application, scaling up the um, you know the installation mm-hmm. of these things on the grid, so that you had enough of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Have I got
0: that? Have I got that more or less correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just by curiosity, was the company ESS Inc.
0: Yes, it was. Okay.
1: Excellent. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of them. Um, yeah, I think their iron flow technology looks really promising because uh, iron is, is quite cheap if you compare it to you know uh, metals like cobalt, lithium, vanadium. Um, and yeah, I think you got it right. What we need now is scaling up, uh, also for aqueous organic chemistries. We have pretty, I would say interesting demonstrators at the 100 kilowatt hour scale. And so now in, at least in Europe, uh, we're really looking into scaling up and having this first industrial scale system, which we can install in the grid.
0: What about European startups? That seems to be, there seems to be a lot of activity in this space.
1: Mm-hmm. Also in the US, but I have to confess that I'm more familiar with uh, European startups, since I've collaborating with a couple of them. Um, so in, in terms of aqueous organic chemistries, I think the leading one currently is Jena Batteries in Germany, uh, in Jena, Eastern Germany. They're also the one which, uh, with whom I collaborated the most uh, during my PhD. Then in France, you have chemiwatts. Uh, which are, uh, who are developing a chemistry that was actually inv- invented by Stanford University, if I'm not mistaken. And then in Italy, you have green energy storage, uh, also kind of a similar system, quinon based uh, system. Um, and then I know that there are some things going on in the US also uh, from you know, the ASIS group at Stanford. Uh, I'm a bit less familiar with what they're doing, but they, it, it's looking really promising also uh, over there now where are these startups at
0: in in their development because you know uh, we hear about the the, uh, the the process of you know you go from the bench to the maybe a pilot to a demonstration to commercialization and mm-hmm. there are always problems with with uh, access to capital in there mm-hmm. that, the valley of death where the 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 technology exactly. is promising mm-hmm. enough that it it looks like it could be scaled up but at the same time, you know, capital isn't available to do that and promising mm-hmm.
1: tech startups fail. So where are we at with these startups? So I think so here I have to be careful not to give, you know, any protected information or anything. But I think what I can say is that 2022 is going to be a make it or break it here uh, for these kind of startups. Because uh, the, on the demonstrator scale, you know, on microgrids, um, it's working. And now these startups are going to have their first contracts coming up uh, with the first customers at the large scale. We're talking a few hundred kilowatt hours, perhaps megawatt hour, Um, and they have to deliver. And they have to deliver this year and in the five coming years. And. Well, you mentioned microgrids and that's, there's an
0: increasing interest in microgrids because, and and one of the uh, motivations for that, of course, is resiliency. And we, you know, especially Mm -hmm. in the U S we see, we've seen failures in California and uh, in Texas. And so a lot of communities are are saying, well, why don't we build our own microgrid and that we can control and, and we can build resiliency into it. Uh, What are the applications of the flow battery technology for microgrids?
1: Um, so that's, that's actually a very good question. Um, and I think, I think we need to you know, go back to the, the, the general picture between centralized grid and microgrids. So as you mentioned, microgrids, the main advantage is that they offer built-in resiliency, right? Because uh, suddenly you, you don't have to regulate the frequency on a national grid. You just have to regulate the supply and demand of electricity over the scale of you know a town, a village maybe. Um, so that's for sure, that's interesting. But then, then you have to wonder in, the Europe, in Europe and in the US, we have already built this very well-functioning national grids, right? So do we need to change all the system to go toward microgrids? Uh, but then I think there's a market that's interesting. It's Africa and Southeast Asia, uh, where these centralized grids haven't been built yet. And so what would be the best applications for them? I think they will be looking for the cheapest batteries uh, in terms of both investment cost and also levelized cost, you know, on the whole, on the whole uh, lifetime um, of the battery. And so, so in this regard, uh, flow batteries, they're a bit more expensive on the investment cost, but then since they offer a longer lifetime, typically then you can have the levelized cost go down. So now the question is how competitive can flow batteries be with, uh, against lithium ion with respect to the investment cost of the battery?
0: Well, let's talk about that. Uh, I do a lot of interviews with battery experts and we talk about, you know, the uh, price per kilowatt hour of a cell or price per mm-hmm. kilowatt hour of a, of a, a battery uh, of, of the pack. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, at Bloomberg NEF, the last time I interviewed them, they were saying that last year, the average price across the, the EV industry was $132 per kilowatt hour for a, for a pack. But the cell, mm-hmm. the price per cell was down under 100 already and now we're and and they're forecasting very dramatic uh drop in cost for lithium ion we might see Mm -hmm. by the early 2030s uh 40 a kilowatt hour for battery packs so given that that's kind of the context for at least on the ev side of lithium ion can you tell us a little bit about the costs of uh flow batteries
1: yeah again very good uh question and i think like the thing we have to realize about cost questions is that the main driver uh, between the reductions in cost is what we call the the learning curve effect, right? So the more you install capacity and the more you learn and the more your costs go down. And so I think there's a general good correlation when you plot it on a log-log scale is that for each uh, megawatt hour that you install, no, sorry, every time you multiply the installed capacity by 1,000, you divide the cost by 10. And lithium-ion have been, have been going down this learning curve for 20 years now. Uh, and flow batteries, and especially these you know, innovative chemistries, uh, as you mentioned, iron flow or aqueous organic, we are just at the beginning of this learning curve. And so the question now is, where can we be in 5 to 10 years from now? And I think this also, we go back to the make, or, make it or break it here. Uh, If if we make it. And if more contracts keep coming for these chemistries, I think we can, yeah, we can have the same learning curve as lithium ion.
0: Now, uh, lithium ion, as well as other uh, uh, you know, renewable technologies like wind and solar. Have benefited a great deal from government support. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's either they've been directly subsidized or they've been supported in other ways by uh, policy and, and, and regulatory regimes. And it mm-hmm. seems to me that given the importance of of uh, storage to utilities, and you know, the the in climate policy, electrification of economies is a, a big policy directive. So. Mm-hmm are governments coming to the table and saying, okay, look, we've got this great storage technology now, flow batteries, but it needs to scale up. That'll bring the cost down. We're gonna put some money into it to support that process like we did with wind and solar. Is that where we're at?
1: Mm, That's a good question. Uh, That's that's a very good question. And I think, well, as a European, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go back to the events that are happening right now in Europe, uh, especially Eastern Europe, because the main question we're facing now is, um, the governments are facing, is that we may be going towards a rarification of Russian gas. And so that poses the question, what, is, what are the alternatives? Um, and what kind of subsidies do we need to invent in order to you know, fill the gap left by Russian gas? And this I'm afraid I'm not qualified enough to answer. Um, But I think there's definitely something to be done by the European Union and the US on this front. So subsidizing long duration uh, storage technologies.
0: Yeah, that would seem to make a lot of sense because it was only uh, last month the uh, European Union uh, released its plan to mm-hmm. uh, get off Russian gas entirely. And a lot of it had to do with electrifying things like uh, home heating with heat pumps yeah,
1: and, and
0: electrifying transfer. And so if you're gonna produce all that power, you're going to need more storage. It would just seem luck. So I guess we'll, we'll watch what happens in the European Union as they mm-hmm. proceed proceed with this strategy. So let's finish up the interview, uh, Gail, with mm-hmm. uh, with a discussion of new technology. So we've we've talked about iron flow a little bit. Uh, you describe some of the work you're doing on uh, aqueous uh, um, organic. Mm-hmm. Organic. Uh, what are the kinds of technologies are we are emerging in the flow battery space?
1: That's a, a good question. So recently, you know, I did some data scraping on an energy-related forum uh, on Reddit, and I just plotted, uh, you know, the kind of so on this forum, there are articles, news articles that are being posted. And people can upvote or downvote a bit, like you know, likes on Facebook. And so I plotted uh, the total score of the articles and the number of comments that were below them in order to see a bit the, the storage technologies that were the most discussed. And so from then, uh, what I could see is that the, the most discussed technology in the news right now is hydrogen. Um, so for grid-scale storage, a lot of people are talking about uh, green hydrogen. Um, you know, this kind of hydrogen economy. So I have my doubts uh, on this, but maybe this would be, you know, this would warrant uh, another podcast entirely. But hydrogen is definitely the one that is uh, gaining the most steam right now, let's say. Then right after hydrogen were flow batteries. So I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see that a lot of people are discussing flow batteries. And then there were a lot of other technologies. So gravity storage technologies like pump hydro. Uh, which is by far the most common technology installed on the grids uh, right now, which is facing some limitations in terms of geography. Uh, so typically you need a higher reservoir and a lower reservoir. So you usually build this in mountainous regions. And we've kind of reached the limit of what we can build right now, at least in Europe. Um, then there's thermal storage, which looks really interesting. But th- here the idea is to use you know this concentrated solar power plant and concentrate the solar power and melt um some uh, some salt so it's called molten salt technology uh this looks also very promising but if we're looking at uh, applications that are meant to stabilize the electric grid then it's not really for this application it's more about you know concentrating the power from the sun um and so then and then there's uh, a wealth of new battery technologies uh, sodium ion liquid metal batteries, uh, sodium sulfur batteries, and also all the metal air batteries, so zinc air, iron air. Um, and all of these look very promising. Um, with I think some of them can have different niche applications, uh, obviously, but yeah, the one that seems to be emerging the fastest right now seems to be flow batteries.
0: Is it fair to say, Gail, that that we're developing a whole plethora of storage technologies. some of them are batteries and some of them are hydrogen and compressed air and pump storage and all of these and over the next you know five to ten years in particular as we start to really electrify and and modernize grids and so on that these technology utilities are going to be have the they they're pick of the best technologies as mm-hmm. you say niche applications what do I need I'm a I'm a utility in western Canada that has mm-hmm. you know hydro or I'm a utility down in uh, midwestern the U.S. that has you know you know this particular mix maybe I've got renewables and some coal mm-hmm. that I'm trying to get off and some gas those sorts of things but then they'll have all the technologies they need it's a matter of picking the right ones integrating it into their grid learning, you know, that learning curve you're talking about, Mm -hmm. costs are coming down. I suspect that 10 years from now, you and I will look back on this conversation and be quite surprised at how much progress has been made on utility scale storage.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in saying that there's many different applications and many different use cases and many different, you know, contexts, national contexts. And I don't think it's possible to have one size fits all technology. Uh, so far, we had lithium ion, uh, which was, I mean, it's a really great technology. I mean, you can use it in you know phones, cars, uh, stationary storage. But yeah, in the future, I think different niche applications or different countries will need different technologies. And there is definitely room in this market for a lot of you know, emerging technologies.
0: Well, Gail, thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate this. Thank you very much.